The scripture reading for this evening comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 18, 1 through 8. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the ground, bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by on your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and as he prepared it, and as and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. It's the time of year when we have people over, we have guests in our home, and, and we serve as hosts and hostesses for family, for friends, for acquaintances of all sorts. And for some of us, that's a beautiful thing. For some of us, that's an aggravating thing. I'm reminded of a man who took his dog to a, to a veterinarian right before Christmas and said, I want you to chop off my dog's entire tail. And the veterinarian said, well, that's something I usually don't do unless it's medically necessary. So can you explain to me why you want your dog's tail chopped off? And the man said, well, my mother-in-law is coming to stay with us for Christmas, and I don't want anything in the house to give her the impression that she's welcome. It sounded better to me than it did to you, but... Anyway, hospitality is, is one of those things that can be challenging, and yet it can be beneficial as well. And we enter now a story in the life of Abraham where Abraham's going to show us what hospitality really entails. See, in Genesis chapter 18, in in these first six verses that we just read, Abraham is waiting at his tent. He's already been informed in the previous chapter that a year in the future, he will finally have that child of promise. That one year into the future, Sarah will give birth to Isaac. And now he's just waiting for that to come to fruition. The next thing he knows, three guys, three men show up on his doorstep. And Abraham shifts into host mode. Real quick, I want us to spend a moment and just notice Abraham's level of hospitality. Because in this episode, Abraham proves to be an exceptional host. First, I want you to notice that Abraham served ignorantly. Now, what I mean by that is that Abraham served these three men without knowing that God was appearing to him in the flesh. Now, here's the thing about God. This is not the first appearance of God on earth, but it is the first appearance of God in the form of a human. 
You can go back to the, the, to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and God appeared to Adam and Eve in some form, some fashion, when they heard the sound of Him walking in the garden. You can go back to Genesis chapter 12 when we're told that the Lord appeared to Abraham in some unknown form there when Abraham arrived for the first time in the land of promise. We can go back to Genesis chapter 16 and, and, and God appeared to Hagar via the angel of the Lord. And you can even go back one chapter from here in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1 and we're told that the Lord appeared to Abraham again in some unknown form. And this is when he changed Abram's name and Sarai's name and instituted circumcision. So the Lord has appeared before, but never, never in human form. This is a first. And God's appearance to Abraham as a man in this instance is going to tell us more about Abraham than it is about God. And so Abraham has God in his presence, but I don't believe Abraham knew that it was God. And here's why. If you look there in Genesis chapter 18, you'll notice that the narrator refers to God as the Lord, and he uses the divine name of Yahweh. We know this because if you look at Genesis chapter 18, excuse me, and verse 1, we're told that the Lord, and it uses small capital letters. That's our English translation's way of communicating that the, that the divine name is being employed. Genesis 18 and verse 1 says, The Lord appeared to Abraham. And you'll see the narrator use that small capitalization of the word Lord all throughout this chapter. He does it again in verse 13, verse 17, verse 20, verse 22, verse 26, and verse 33. That's his way of saying, this is God. And it's very clear in this chapter that God is the one appearing to Abraham. But Abraham doesn't communicate with this man as if he is God. You see, when Abraham speaks to the individual in his presence, he says in verse 3, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant. Now, at first glance, you're going to think, oh, he's using God's name. He's saying, O Lord, as if he knows that's the Lord. But if you notice there in Genesis chapter 18, verse 3, the word Lord is not capitalized in any way, shape, or form. Abraham, instead of using the divine name and referring to God as Lord, he's using the polite, culturally acceptable term for speaking to someone that you view as worthy. It would be similar to you and I referring to a man as sir or a woman as ma'am. That's the language that, P that Abraham is using here the everyday polite greeting similar to sir or ma'am. But, and it's very interesting to note that because once Abraham realizes that the man he addressed
Abraham says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Now here's where the trans- transition takes place. He's not just saying Lord. He's saying the Lord. He doesn't utilize the divine name. Is this not working? Oh man, I got to start over. I'm sorry. I have a green light for the record. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. So let me summarize real quick. So you have Abraham here, because I think the front row heard me, but I don't know if the back row did. So Abraham here is communicating with God, but he's not using the title the narrator uses. He's not using the divine name that appears in, all cap, uh, in small caps. Instead, he uses a polite greeting. But then when he realizes who it is in his presence, when he realizes it's God, he starts referring to him as the Lord, using that definite article to identify him. He didn't himself employ the divine name, but he employs that definite article, which indicates that he recognizes the one in his presence now as God. That change reveals that Abraham didn't know who the man was until after his display of omniscience. But you know what's really extraordinary here? The amazing thing about this whole episode is that Abraham could not have treated God any better if he had realized who was in his presence. In other words, Abraham treated people like he was in the presence of God all the time. So when he actually was in the presence of God, he didn't have to up his game or change his behavior. See, Abraham set an example to us in the moment. In his ignorance of who was in his presence, he was still behaving, still treating that individual the way he would treat anyone in the presence of God. Abram set a standard there of serving despite his ignorance of who was in in front of him. And not only did Abraham serve ignorantly, but he served actively. When these three men arrived at Abraham's door, Abraham sprung into action. Look at what the text said he did when he saw these three men. Pick it up in verse 2, halfway, midway through verse 2. Look at how Abraham's actions are described. When Abraham saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself before, uh, to the earth. And then pick up in verse 6, where we're told that Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seals of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And, and then verse 7, Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then in verse 8, he took curds and milk and, and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Here's what stands out to me about these details. Abraham actively orchestrated the guest services offered by his family to these three men. He was not passively telling other people what to do. Now, yes, he did employ the help of Sarah and a servant to prepare the food that would be offered to these individuals. But look at what Abraham is doing. He's personally running to and fro to get everything together. He's personally bowing before his guests in humility. He's personally taking refreshments to his guests. He's personally standing beside them while they eat as if he is a butler waiting to fulfill their next request. Abraham was not a passive host, despite his stature as a wealthy and powerful man. 
He did not sit comfortably and expect everyone else to do the work. And despite his advanced age, he's 99 years old at this point, he did not use that as an excuse for other people to do the work. Scripture indicates that Abraham had several servants when he left Egypt in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 16. And Scripture even indicates they had 318 trained fighters. That gives us an idea of how many people he actually had under his authority. So he easily could have had someone else do this work, but he did it. Because that's the kind of host he was. No one would claim Abraham was lazy. No one would claim that Abraham had a a superiority complex. Abraham was a servant through and through, and he actively cared for those guests that were in his presence. But not only did Abraham serve actively, he also served sacrificially. I find it very interesting to compare what Abraham offered these guests in way of refreshments when they arrived and what he actually gave them. Notice in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 5 that he offered to bring them a morsel of bread. But according to verses 6 through 8, he had Sarah bake some cakes. That's the bread. Then he had a servant prepare a tender and good calf for them to eat. Then he ran and got some curds and milk and brought all that before them. He offered them a refreshment, but brought them a dinner. This small detail, it indicates that Abraham went the extra mile in showing hospitality. He didn't settle for the bare minimum. He maxed out what he could do for them. He did more than he was obligated to do. He even did more than he offered to do. And as a result, Abraham's service here can be defined as a sacrificial act or an unselfish act. He's willing to do more than he even offered to do. Because Abraham served sacrificially as well. As we look at the life of Abraham, this individual who's identified as a friend of God three different times in the Bible, we see someone who prioritized hospitality. We see someone whose character was put on display through his demonstration of exceptional hospitality. And the thing is, Abraham is the father of faith, but I think he's also the father of service. He set the bar, and we need to realize that such hospitality matters. And you know why? Hospitality matters because it's a reflection of our affection. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, John posed a rhetorical question. He said, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet yet closes his heart against his brother, how does God's love abide in him? John's saying, hey, if you see someone in need and you refuse to do anything, then how do you actually have God's love in you? And then from there, he went in chapter 4 and verse 20 and said, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What John is saying is if you're not going to show your love for your brother, and one way you do that is by providing for his needs when he has them. If you're not going to show your love for your brother, then guess what? You don't actually have love. John's point is that our love for God is demonstrated by the way we treat others. 
That's why the greatest command has two parts to it. The first part is love God. The second part is love people. You can't love God without the loving people part. And so the way we treat people reflects our love for God. And we are therefore expected to serve others, and we are expected to be hospitable toward others because those things are an act of love. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, Paul instructs us to love one another with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in, sh- in showing honor. And then just three verses later, in verse 13 of Romans 12, he adds this. He instructs us to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. Paul combined love and hospitality in this section where he's giving instructions on Christian behavior. Then you can go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, and Peter instructs us to keep loving, keep loving one another earnestly. Then in the very next verse, in verse 9 of 1 Peter 4, he instructs us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Just like Paul, Peter put, uh, Peter connects the dots between showing love and being hospitable. The two go hand in hand. And so in Scripture, you show love to other people by being hospitable to them. And that means you show love to God by being hospitable to other people. Our hospitality is one way in which our love for God is demonstrated. And so, therefore, hospitality matters because it is a reflection of our affection. But hospitality also matters because it is an indication of our maturation. Throughout Scripture, there's there's an expectation that you and I are going to mature, that we're going to grow, that we're going to increase our faith, that we're going to move from milk to meat, that we're going to add to our faith those Christian graces that are mentioned in Peter's writing. And I find it so very interesting that hospitality is identified as a qualification of two distinct groups in the New Testament. First and foremost, hospitality, I'm sorry, this retainer I have in is messing me up. First and foremost, hospitality is identified as a qualification of elders. You can see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 and Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. But hospitality is also identified as a qualification of church-sponsored widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10. And so since the New Testament identifies hospitality as a qualification of church leaders as well as church workers, for lack of a better term, then we can safely conclude that hospitality is one of those traits that identifies spiritual maturity. If you can't be a a, a church leader or you can't be a church-sponsored widow without being hospitable, then obviously hospitality is a quality that is held in high regard. Obviously, hospitality then is evidence of a maturing faith. And so hospitality matters because it's an indication of our maturation. And finally, hospitality matters because it is a condition of our salvation. Let me explain what I mean. There's an interesting passage in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 that you've probably stumbled across before and you've wondered about. I'm not going to explain it away tonight. It's not my goal to help us understand the passage, but I want you to notice this. Hebrews 13, 2. 
do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I think the author was reflecting on Abraham's story. I think the author was reflecting on the fact that of those three men that Abraham met with, one is clearly identified as the Lord. The other two, if you look at the, the text, the context, where they depart from Abraham and the Lord, and they travel to Sodom by chapter 19, they are identified as angels. I think the author is reflecting on that. And I think the author of Hebrews is instructing us that, to, <clears throat> that when we are hospitable, when we are serving in that capacity, we never really know who we are actually serving. And so, therefore, as, as the book of Colossians says, we need to do it diligently, heartily, not for men, but for the Lord, because we never know who we're actually serving. And that's worth mentioning because the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, that parable indicates that our hospitality to others is actually hospitality shown to God. You may recall the parable in Matthew chapter 25. It's very interesting. If you'll turn there with me, let's read the portion of it. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you give, gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Based on this passage, based on this parable, we will be judged based on whether or not we show hospitality toward others, based on whether or not we serve others, based on whether or not we minister to others. We don't like to talk about that. We don't typically group that into the conditions of salvation, but right there it is. It's a parable that talks about Christ's return, his judging of the world, and where people will be sent based on how they served others. So you really have to look at it 
And you really have to think, do I qualify as a sheep based on my current standard of hospitality? Or do I qualify as a goat? So often, when we think about where we will spend eternity and how, we will be, how that will be determined, we, we think about steps of salvation. We think about whether or not we believe. We think about whether or not we repented, whether or not we confessed our belief in Jesus Christ, whether or not we were baptized. We think about those things. We think about whether or not we've been faithful or whether or not we've contributed to the Great Commission. But have we really thought about whether or not we've been hospitable, whether or not we've served, whether or not we've ministered to others? Because that So tonight, as, as we reflect on the life of the first follower once again, and we see how he was hospitable to three strangers, one of, who turn, one of whom turned out to be the Lord, he set a standard for us that we need not overlook. It reminds me of a story I heard. A, a guest was at a particular hotel chain. She was staying for a business trip, and while she was there, she learned that her sister had passed. She was deeply saddened by this news, and, and it happened to share what share her situation and, and her, her deep sorrow with an employee of the hotel. His name was Charles, and Charles decided to go out and, and buy a card and have all the hotel employees sign it, and then he gave it to her with a piece of apple pie, just as a gesture of goodwill. Well, that lady wrote to the president of that hotel chain after that experience. And here's what she said. She said, I'll never meet you, and I don't need to meet you, because I met Charles, and I know what you stand for because of what Charles does. I want you to think about that for a moment in the context of you and I as God's ambassadors. Does the world know what God stands for based on how we show hospitality to the world? Does the world understand who our Father is and what He stands for just by looking at you and I? Because if we are failing in that regard, we are failing the world, we are failing us. True ministering to others entails. And it entails ignorance in the sense of being impartial. And it entails activeness. It entails us not being passive and not waiting on somebody else to do it, but doing it ourselves. And it entails. I'm sorry, I already forgot my third one. And it tells a third thing. <laughs> so, the question this, this evening is this. Salvation. It does impact what it is. <laughs> 
Maybe tonight you need to make some decisions. You need to make some changes. Because you haven't been hospitable the way you should. Maybe you haven't reflected God in the way that you served others. And you need to change. Well, right now we offer an opportunity to make that change. Maybe. Maybe you've come to realize just how hospitable your Father in heaven is to you. Because guess what? He held nothing back. Sacrificial. That was because he sent his son to die for you. No one will ever be as hospitable towards you than God. And maybe realizing that makes you want to follow him. You can make that decision this evening as well by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is his risen son. By repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water. Tonight, the invitation is offered so that we can all make our lives right with God. Won't you come all together? Great, eternal, bright, and fair. When the saved on earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder. When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there. During this next song, if you have not partaken of the Lord's Supper, if you could head to the back, the ushers will show you where to go. While we sing 419, Lord, we come before you now. Four one nine. We'll sing the first and last verse. Lord, we come before
we sing our last song. 684, this world is not my home. 684. <clears throat> we'll sing our first and last verse. This world is not my home, I'm just a pastor. 